mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world, then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing rags to riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires, many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guests, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school. And with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. All right. Hey, welcome to Ditch Digger CEO. We're here today with a gentleman I met years ago in Tel Aviv. Uh, he, he was speaking at an event for entrepreneurs and man, the entrepreneurs in the room were fired up to listen to this guy. So we're, uh, we're blessed to have him today. I actually uh, got to be friends with Yuri afterwards and what a spectacular person. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's pronounced Uri, not Yuri. I, I was, I was sorry to get that messed up because I've got some friends who <laughs> uh, pronounced Yuri, but it's Uri. So Uri Levine, really appreciate you being here today. Thanks for being here. You're, uh, you're an awesome person that uh, we're blessed to be able to listen to and, and, and have as a friend. Thank you. So Uri, um, I've, I've got uh, my nephew Joe here with me today. He might have a couple of questions and then, uh, we always, uh, Chris always throws in a couple. And at the end, we really want to just go over kind of what, you know, what's the, uh, what are the laws of success in, in, in the, uh, in the, in the mind of Uri and, and, uh, you know, how, how do you, how do you look at life and how do you look at entrepreneurship? Um, so we do that every time. And so at the end, we'll, we'll have, we'll have a, we'll have a five or six things, maybe more like, uh, maybe eight or 10 from you, but, um, on, on basically what create what's create, create what creates sex, sex, uh, success in your mind when it comes to entrepreneurship and building building businesses and startups and everything you've done. Um, I'm excited also about your book coming up, so I want to talk about the book because I'm excited to, about that book. I want to order a couple hundred copies for for my friends because I know it's going to be one that delivers a lot of impact. So welcome welcome to Ditch Digger CEO. Appreciate you being here. Can you uh, go go ahead and start with kind of your if you can start with you know. Little bio, who you are, and and uh, what what your mission is in life, and and uh, start with that. So um, yeah, my name is uh, Ray Levine, and probably you would know me as the founder of Waze, and uh, and I would imagine that most of the drivers in the U.S. are do um, do use Waze. Um, but I'm also um, after the Waze was acquired by Google, I. Uh, started the dozens of other startups and uh, and I guide CEOs and I mentor them and uh, um, I ended up with uh, uh, becoming an author of the book uh, fall in love with the problem not the solution um, which is uh, maybe fulfilling uh, um, the second part of worry right so there is one part that everyone knows uh, worry is the entrepreneur and there is another one that worry is the teacher and and I um, feel equally rewarded when I build stuff myself or when I guide someone to build it and they are successful in that. Um, and the book is, uh, um, is fulfilling uh, my destiny of uh, creating value. Um, because at the end of the day, I think that, uh, um, um, you know, this is my destiny, create value, create value through uh, 
um, solutions that I build for real problems and create value to the CEOs that I guide and create value to all the entrepreneurs uh, through presentations and through this book. Um, I'm uh, Israeli. I, am, I live in Tel Aviv. I'm uh, 57 years old, so not that young anymore. But for a second, I would say uh, it's probably a state of mind, right? And and uh, and I would say that uh, um, when um, you know, people don't stop dreaming when they become old. They become old when they stop dreaming. And uh, um, and I always dream. Love it. I agree. I agree hundred percent, Uri. When I think about my the people I look upon as entrepreneurs, uh, many of these people are now in their eighties and nineties, and they're still thinking twenty years ahead. And when I speak to these people, when I hang out with them, I'll tell you what, it's exciting as heck to think about, uh, to, to listen to them, right? To listen to them and their vision of what, what it's going to be like in, in 2040, 2050, right? And, and when we're with those people, I mean, they, they have, you know, we have energy. They, they, they create energy on their own and we, we then transfer that energy and, we're, and, and it makes us think even further than, we're, than, than we may have otherwise, right? So you do that. You're, you're a beacon of light to so many. Again, when I heard you speak at T Tel Aviv University years ago, um, you know everybody in the room was fired up because you know you're 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 thinking years ahead always. You just got through one of the biggest sales in the in the, in the history of, of, of technology, and yet you were you're, you're you had like ten more things going on, and uh, you were just excited about those ten things as you were the you know the, the you know waves and the, and the success you had there. But but I think you said it best. I'm, I'm 59 now, and I think the same way. Um, I, I want to be the old the old guy that uh, doesn't doesn't seem like the old guy because I'm co constantly thinking about solving problems and building 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 business and building entrepreneurs um, because when we do that boy, we create energy and, and impact right that you might not be able to create otherwise. Yeah, exactly, and uh, um, and you know, and, and occasionally I would say we are doing that because we can. Yeah, exactly. Create impact, and when we are doing that. And so, when you think about the, you know, um, you know, let, let's let's go over ways of, you know, if you can go over the the, the brief, uh, I know it's a long story, but the brief story of ways and how that came about is everybody, like you said, everybody listening to this podcast knows ways and, and uses it every day. As a matter of fact, it, I used to I used to uh, drive around and I remember everywhere I went. So you've kind of messed me up. I got to tell you, you, messed me up a little bit because I used to remember everywhere I went on the road, and I could go, I could go there one time. And it could be 50 miles away from my house, and, the, and, and, and two years later, I could find my way back, okay? Now, I mean, I can find my way back much faster than I ever did, but, but I could never do it without, without your technology anymore. So, <laughs> so I, you know, but it probably freed up my brain to think about other things. And, uh, you, know. Exactly. you know, in the same way that uh, we don't remember phone numbers anymore because we don't need to. Um, yes. Uh, and most of the phone numbers that I easily remember are friends from from school, right? Because back then we you had to, right? Uh, right. And we we ended up with uh, um, uh, freeing up some of the space in our mind in order to uh, to um, actually have capture other things and, and think of other things. But but uh, for a second, I would say, and I and I will go back into the uh, probably the beginning of all the startups in the world. And, and they are always starting with uh, um, with an emotional engagement, right? You run into something that you really like and you tell yourself, this is how stuff should be done, right? 
and or you run into something that you really hate and you tell yourself no 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 there is a must be a different way to do that and, and i hate traffic jams right and, and then you allow yourself to think more and more and more um, um until you build the passion and the commitment and the um in the decision that you're basically saying you know what this is what i'm going to do and there is willing to sacrifice and there is realization that this is going to be a roller coaster journey and, and the war journey will return multiple times through this conversation because at the end of the day if i need to define a startup then i would say this is a long roller coaster journey of failures right so there are three elements to that one is it's going to be really long and uh, because when you run a business in most cases you already know what is your product and who are the customers and how much they are going to pay and how you're going to bring new customers and pretty much if you maintain the current course most likely you'll be successful if you're building a startup then you don't have a product you don't even know who your customers are you don't you're not even sure what is the story that you're going to tell them uh, you definitely don't have a business model um, and you don't know how to bring the customers right and so there are multiple journeys that you'll need to go through in order to make it successful and these are long and each one of them is a journey of failures albert einstein used to say that if you haven't failed that because you haven't tried anything new before if you're going to try new things you will fail so if, if you haven't if you haven't failed it's because you haven't tried anything new um you know you you fail every day right and then conversation that i had earlier today with Addy, she said you know i have 30 items on my list and uh, and it's not shrinking it's growing and i said you know what we're gonna make some of them and some of them we will we won't and and that's it I would say fail fast and then and fail forward, right? Fall forward and back you're back up going forward and you remember what you know what caused the failure and, and it's a great lesson for, for future success. It's even more significant, right? Because once you realize that this is a journey of failures, then there are two immediate conclusions, right? The number one is if you're afraid to fail, then in reality you already failed because you're not going to try. The second one, which is even more important, is that you have to fail fast. Because when you fail fast, you actually have enough time, enough resources, enough funding to make another attempt to try something else and to keep on trying until, until you find one thing that does work. Because at the end of the day, this is what we are looking for. Now, in general, I would say for all the startups in the world, the first journey is always going to be figuring out product market fit. And by, by product market fit, what I really mean is creating value to your customers or to your users, right? If you don't create value, then there is no reason for your existence. In reality, if you don't figure out product market fit, you will die. As simple as that. If you do, then two things is going to happen. Number one, you're probably going to be successful because you figure out a way to create value. And if you figure out a way to create value, then the rest will follow. The second one, and this is really important is at the end of the day if you figure out product market fit you actually bought yourself a ticket to the next part of the journey so now you can go into figuring out business model or figuring out growth um and and again each one of them is going to be a journey of failures 
But going back to product market feed, and this is really important, you never heard of a company that did not figure out product market fit. They simply died. That's it, right? And you never heard of them. Those that did, and this is where it becomes really interesting. And for a second, I would say, think of you know all the applications that you're using every day, right? Being Waze, being searching Google, being Facebook, Uber, whatever it is, right? And ask yourself, what is the difference between any of those applications that you are using today and the first time that you have used that? And the answer is that there is no difference. We are searching Google today the same way that we search Google for the first time in our life. We are using Waze today the same way or Uber or Netflix or whatever it is. So once you figure out product market fit, which is the value that you bring to your users, you don't change that anymore. And this is really important. You're doing a lot of other things, right? So you need to, to figure out the business model. You need to figure out growth. You increase the addressable market. You need to take care of the technology so it wouldn't crash once you have a lot of users. But from the value proposition to the users or to the customers, it doesn't change anymore. And, and, and again, if you don't figure out product market fit, you will die. How about, how about when you think about changing value propositions, right? I mean, like, you know, like you always say, you know, uh, you know, to, to fall in love with the problem, not the solution, right? If you can constantly understand the problems and they're ever changing problems, right? Hopefully you stay on top of the changing value proposition because, you know, you think you like plenty of companies, big companies like Blockbuster or Kodak, Kodak cameras and film, right? That maybe didn't, didn't, you know, didn't realize the changing value proposition that somebody else was, was figuring out before them, right? And they, and they didn't change, they didn't change fast enough. So, so now we are speaking about uh, market disruption, right? And these are awesome examples, right? Because you think about, uh, you know, what essentially killed Kodak was digital camera, right? Now you ask yourself, so who invented the digital camera? Kodak did. In did they life. really? They did, actually, in 1976 in their lab. And they called the CEO to show the CEO the new invention that they just created. And he said, shh, don't tell anyone, right? So wow. obviously you, you cannot, and, and by the way, Blockbuster and Netflix is even more amazing story because, uh, because you know, Netflix CEO came to Blockbuster CEO and asked him to acquire them twice. Right. And they say no. And in yeah. their management meeting, what they basically said is that whatever they can do, we can do better. Yes. When you think about it, it was the same with Microsoft and, and the iPhone, right? So, so 2007, Steve Jobs presents the iPhone and, and, uh, and Steve Ballmer at the time, CEO of Microsoft says, this will never work, right? Maybe in, in other words, but essentially say, this will never work. And, uh, um, and the important part is that when you really look at, at disruptors, they are always newcomers. They are the one that have nothing to lose. And, uh, um, and this is really critical to understand the market. Now, existing corporates have very hard time to, uh, to disrupt their market because, um, because it's scary, right? Because they're afraid of the change. Because what happened is, is that the DNA of the company, of, of a corporate, in most cases, 
is it has a lot of fear of failure, right? And people are afraid to fail. People are afraid. If you're afraid to fail, then you are not going to try new things, and that's it, right? There is more in right? Yeah, fair failure is such an important thing to realize that, you know, so many, once they're set in their ways, once they have their their wealth and their their success, right? They're, they're, they, they, they become fearful. They, they start out entrepreneurial, and and eventually, whether they're bought out by a bigger you know bigger company or they stick with it and they somehow grow to you know multi hundreds of millions or billions, um, often they get to be in, you know in fear of failure and, and that becomes their demise. You know, I, you may know this. I think I may have met, uh, introduced you to Bijou when you were in town, and Bijou was the, was one of the founders of Redbox, and 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 Redbox also went to uh, Blockbuster and and was looking for investments and they turned them away. And then, I, then later on, I interviewed uh, Mark Randolph from from uh, Netflix. Had the same exact story. So you know, Blockbuster yeah. could be such a big behemoth, right? They were so in fear of failure that they didn't, they wouldn't pony up the you know forty fifty million dollars to buy out one of these companies to understand if they if they could create you know a, you know a, a new a new value proposition. And uh, boy, that's uh, you know a lesson that uh, anybody can learn from. Hopefully, I think that. Uh... The most important thing, and this is really major message to corporates that thinks about innovation, right? And, and in particular, if you think of disruption, and, and there they are a few really important insights here. Number one is that corporate cannot innovate or cannot disrupt their own market because, uh, because they are afraid of the change because of ego management, right? And because in particular, corporates, Look, entrepreneurs are troublemakers. Corporates don't like troublemakers, right? Most likely, they don't even have the the right persona. Hold on, hold on. I, I love I love this what you're saying, right? Entrepreneurs are troublemakers. <laughs> Big corporations, they, right? They they, they challenge things. They don't take they don't take things for granted, and they challenge things. And the result is that in the large corporations, they they don't survive. But the most important thinking of, of disruption is, is, and I will define for a second disruption as change in the market equilibrium, right? So it has nothing to do with technology. It could be because of a new product that is being introduced to the market that changed the market equilibrium. A new product could be a result of new technology. It could be a new price, right? Look, nearly all the people that I know are using Gmail, right? Gmail is 17 years old. Before that, we used to pay money in order to have a mailbox. And then Google introduced Gmail, and at the beginning, it was not good enough. But after a few iterations, it became good enough and free. And that's it. No one can compete with good enough and free. No one can compete with that. But but I want us to think for a second on the disruption that Uber introduced into the taxi drivers market, right? Um, or on-demand trips. And all the taxi drivers in the world they hate Uber, but when Uber introduced their solution, the market essentially today is more than ten times bigger than before. Ten times bigger. In this 10 times bigger, there's room for Uber, there is room for Lyft, there is room for 99 Taxi, there is room for Grab. There is three times more room for medallion taxi drivers. So their market increased three folds because of Uber. Wow. And 
the most important statement that you need to think of disruption is that if disruption is about changing market equilibrium, then the new market, by definition, is way better than the previous one. And so the opportunity is way bigger than the threat. And only then you can start to think about it as an opportunity and not as a threat, because most corporates will see disruption as a threat. But if you start to think about it as, a, as an opportunity, then maybe you will tell yourself, you know what? My way to grow is actually if the market shifts. And if the market shifts, I want to have a position in the new market. And that new market is going to be much bigger than before. And therefore, this is how my company is going to grow. And then you actually, so, so there are two things that you actually need to do. One is, is understand when it's about to happen. So, so how do you detect disruption that is due or, or potentially disruption to the market? And that's really easy. Once a year, take the top management, maybe with some external consultant and ask yourself one question. What will make me irrelevant? So if you can think of something that will make you irrelevant in the market in five or 10 years, there is someone else that can think about it as well. And that's Absolutely. something that might be building right now, something that will make you irrelevant. And that's, this a, is that's a great question we all need to ask ourselves, that's for sure. You know, um, Yuri, Yuri, last time I talked to you, Yuri, last time I talked to you, you were out and you, and you came out to visit for a couple of days, they had a blast with you. I introduced you to a bunch of my a bunch of my friends who are entrepreneurs. They all got a kick out of it. You know, just uh, really were uh, were excited to meet you and listen to you and stuff and just hang out with you. Um, but you remember we started that company, Site, back then. Site was the um, the company where we used drones to assess the condition of real estate um, pavements, and and it was originally just pavements back then, Uri. And then uh, so now it's roofs and pavements, and now we're going into we're getting the engineering completed right now. The artificial intelligence engineering completed for facades, and then next will be landscaping and lighting and everything else. And we only really hit the biggest buildings in the world. We've, we, we're working for the biggest industrial building owners, biggest retailers in the country, and and many of which are biggest in the world: Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, Prologis, uh, Blackstone, and so on. And uh, that little business has grown to about probably about a hundred million dollar valuation now and growing fast. And uh, you know, and, and believe me, you know, talking to you as we're as we're starting this thing up, we, and we've thought about, you know, what do we, you know, are, are we hurting our industry? Because back then we were taking basically um, the the you know, we knew that we we're going to take the jobs of engineers of like our own who walk properties physically. And then come back with assessments three or four weeks later on a million square foot property, and we knew that we were going to shrink that time in 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 a fraction. It turned out to be about five percent of the time now that it takes, um, as well as be able to do way more of these in in a course of a day or a week or a month. Um, you know, just uh, hundreds of times more. Um, so we thought about this. The industry said to us that, "Boy, you're going to be taking the jobs of engineers, right?" Well, guess what? Our engineers and other engineers. Only did they would only do maybe one percent, maybe two percent of all the properties in the in the world from our customers. The problem properties were the ones that got attention before. Now our customers, like Prologis and Blackstone and these customers, now they're doing one hundred percent of their their properties because it's so inexpensive, it's so easy to to use, and uh, and the and the technology is getting better and better and better, and the engineering is incredible. 
So again, now we're, we're, we're doing, you know, hundred percent of the properties for our customers instead of one or 2%. And those engineers that, that, you know, we, you know, somebody would say would be replaced are busier than ever because now you need consultative minds in engineering to help figure out what they're doing going forward besides our product. And so it's really created an industry that wasn't there before. So I, I remember all this that, you know, cause I was talking to you about this initially, you know, we, we, some people were like, oh gosh, your engineers are going to be really pissed because you're going to take a lot of engineering jobs. Well, no, we're realizing that's creating more jobs than ever. And the customer has better information now to make better decisions than they've ever had before. So that, that, that we, when I talked to you back then, Uri, we may have been up to about hundred million square feet of assessments. We started at 50 million physically doing assessments of 50 million square feet of pavements. We are probably at 100 or 150 million when I talked to you last. We're now over 5 billion square feet of pavement assessment. And now we're into roofs. And that just got completed about eight months ago or a year ago. And then we'll be into facades and everything else. So it's a, a product that's just growing crazy, serving a need that was never served before. So, you know, we fell in love with the problem and, and uh, as you, as you, you know, guided us, right? And, and it was obvious back then that essentially once once it works then you're going to increase your addressable market by a thousand folds right and, and this is exactly what happened right because until then the 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 cost on one hand the duration on the other hand the ability to fulfill was the barrier for the market because everyone needs that right everyone needs that um and uh, um, and the information that you can provide is is dramatically going to help them to to become more successful right in their businesses um and obviously in your businesses as well right so tell me tell me okay go i mean people want to hear about i mean i i know the story because i read read about it and you told me about it but the the story of ways if you could give that like the three four or five minute story of ways and then tell us about you know what what you see as one of or two of your mo most exciting uh, projects going forward, your, your most exciting journeys going forward, um, you know, whether whether it be in, in Move It or Sea Tree or Live Care or whatever. So cool. So, so, um, so you know, the, the, when we started, and, and one of the reasons that we started is that I really hate traffic jams and, and I tried to figure out a way to address that. And, uh, um, and there was a moment of time that I realized that really what I want is someone to be ahead of me on the road and tell me what's going on. <laughs> and uh, um, this is it, right? And and, um, and the magic of Waze is that Waze crowdsource everything, not just traffic information, and this is being done automatically because when you drive someplace, we know how fast you are going and based on your speed we know if there is traffic jams there or not and and we can report back to the rest of the drivers that there is a traffic jam there and essentially you recalculate the fastest route or every time but the real magic of ways is that we crowdsource the map data as well and so when we started the ways map was a blank page there was absolutely nothing on the map and when the first driver drove, we collected the GPS data from the device. And if we take this GPS data and draw that, then we're going to get exactly all the turns and all the, the directions that this person went, right? And if you're going to take that from a lot of drivers, you actually get the entire grid of where people are driving, right? And we, which intersection they're making turns 
And if there is an intersection that no one is making left turn, then no left turn is allowed, right? And, and this is exactly what we did. We build a software that takes all of this data and creates the map. And, uh, and at the beginning, obviously, the map is incomplete. So everyone realized that, wait a minute. So what you're telling me is that at the beginning, there was no roads. And, and so why would people use that, right? And in many cases, those users were enthusiastic amateurs were the early adopters of the GIS GPS space. And they really liked the idea that they can control their own destiny with the map. And, uh, um, <clears throat> and so we launched that. We started the, our journey in 2007 by saying, this is what we're going to do. And we um, had some hard time to raise capital. We only raised capital at the beginning of 2008. And we started the company. The first version of Waze was running on a PDA. Remember, long, long, long time ago, there were dinosaurs, and then PDAs, and then Nokia phones, and today we all have iPhones and Android, right? This long time ago is 15 years. That's it. This is yeah. how fast things are changing. You know, maybe um, and I've recently read that uh, um, Elon Musk uh, had lost $200 billion this year. Um, and we tend to forget that he actually created that the year before. Um, and uh, But uh, 15 years ago, there was no Tesla. Yep. So if we will have a time machine and I will send all of us back into 2007, then that means that I'm going to take away our iPhone and, uh, um, and Facebook and Tesla and Uber and Waze and Netflix and pretty much everything that we're using every day, right? And uh, um, and this is um, this is how fast things are changing. Once yeah, the world will get, be a different place for sure. You know, people ask me occasionally. So, so what does it mean for the next decade, right? And, and the reality is that we don't know, right? We fail to see the far future. We might be able to see the near future, but we fail to see the far future because of revolutions and a non-linear path between now and the far future. But occasionally I will tell people, you know what, just imagine, think of the top 10 companies of the world today in terms of market cap and ask yourself, so who is going to remain in the top 10 in 2033, right? And the answer is only five. We don't know which one. If we would know, I will tell you, sell short on the other and this is it, right? We don't know. The most important, the more important part will be which companies are going to replace them in the top 10. And some of those, you haven't heard their name yet. Some of them, some haven't started. They, they probably have started because the, the first decade is a journey of, of establishing the, the the cornerstones for for becoming extremely successful so the first decade for most of the companies is going to be around uh, um, you know figuring out product market fit figuring out growth figuring out business model and only then you're really ready to take off um and uh, um and and this is how you know, this is why innovations and disruption and changing markets is so dramatic because when it happens, it's it makes things completely different than the way that they were before. And people cannot even imagine what it was like 
before. Um, and uh, um, so ways, you know, we started, we launched the product in 2009 uh, in Tel Aviv, and it was actually pretty good. And so we decided that we can go everywhere with the product because of uh, the self-created maps and, uh, um, and the magic that uh, um, of, of the flywheel that uh, that serves the system. And it turns out that it's not good enough. It was not good enough in the US. It was not good enough in Europe. It was not good enough in Latin America. It was good enough in a very few places like, uh, um, you know, Czech Republic and Latvia and Ecuador. So very small places. Um, and, and this is what happens, right? So you think about it and you say, okay, wait a minute. We realize that it's not good enough. People like the story. So they download the app, they try it and they quit. Um, and uh, and so we called them up and we asked them why, what happened, right? And they told us what didn't work. And we go back into the engineering room and we create the next version that that we know that is going to address all the issues that they've told us. And we know that this is it and it's not. And so we're doing it all over again. We speak with the drivers. They tell us what doesn't work for them. We build the next version. We know that this is it and it's not. Iteration after iteration after iteration, right? Journey of failures, right? Every time you go with the conviction that this is it, and it's not. It was full year of iterations until we started to become good enough. And once you become good enough and Waze was free, then you start to see how things become, how you reach your critical mass or how you become the talk of the town in multiple places. In the US, it was uh, Los Angeles first. And then San Francisco, and then Washington, D.C., and Atlanta, and Chicago, and New York, and one metropolitan after that. In Europe, it was one country after that, or Italy first, and then Netherlands, and then France, and Spain, and Sweden, and one country after that. In Latin America, one country after that. And, and then in 2012, Waze was growing faster than the entire industry combined. So you take all navigation devices and all navigation apps and all in-car navigation system and Waze was outgrowing all of them combined. Wow. And in 2013, Google came with a proposal to acquire us and they um, and we said yes. Now, people often ask me whether or not it was the right decisions and I will tell them, look, there are right decisions or no decisions because when you make a decision, you don't know what it would be like if you will choose a different path, right? So we mentioned earlier uh, Blockbuster and, and uh, Netflix, right? What would have happened if they would have said yes? Yeah. Know that, right? Yeah. Google, yeah. Google failed to raise capital at the beginning. They had very hard time and they approached Yahoo and asked Yahoo to acquire them for $2 million. $2 million, not $2 billion, not $2 trillion, $2 million. <laughs> And they say no. And, and you say, big mistake, right? We don't know that. We don't know what would have happened if they would have said yes. Um, and Uri, so, we, so Uri, one thing you mentioned a couple of times here, and I want to go, go with this because I think it's a mistake I see a lot in my, in my own companies, right? We have really smart engineers, really smart people. Sometimes they want perfect. And, and before they go to market, they think it should be perfect. Well, you said good enough many times here, right? And tell, tell me about that, you know, good enough compared to people that want perfect, 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 that never get to market, right, sometimes. So talk about that a little bit, if you could. So, so for a second, I would say the biggest enemy of good enough is perfect. 
<laughs> the reality is that those that are going to win the market are going to be those that are not that are good enough. Because uh, imagine that we have two twin sisters companies, right? And they are building exactly the same product. And they are making similar progress until a certain point of time that one of them is saying, you know what, I'm going to go to the market with what I have. And the other one is saying, you know what, it's it's embarrassing to go to the market with the product that we have. We're going to wait. We're going to polish it again and again and finish it more and more and more until it's ready. What happened at this phase is that the first company is going to learn so much faster because you get the feedbacks of the real users. And only once you get the feedback of the real users, you can actually improve dramatically. And so up until that moment, they were twin sisters. And all of a sudden, one of them is keep on growing exactly at the same pace. And the other one is growing fast and growing fast because they are learning fast. And if, if, if an entrepreneur will come to me and say, you know, my product is not re ready yet, I will tell him, look, the first thing that you need to do is launch because only then you're going to get feedbacks from the user. And if they will tell me, you know what, this is going to be embarrassing, then I say, look, I've been embarrassed so many times. Don't worry about it. I do, you know, get up. Um, but the other part of it, which is more important, is that occasionally people will tell, will tell me, you know what, if the product is not ready, then we're going to hurt our brand name. And I will tell them, look, you don't even have users. You don't have brand name. Um, you don't have users. There's nothing for you to lose, right? And even if you'll even if you'll displease them, the first users, then you'll have the next users and the next users. And the main role of you is learning from those users in order to improve the product for the next users. Um, and there is only one way to do that: get out. Yeah, and and you know, you you also talked about when I when I got to you know spend time with you, feedback loop, right? And we we put people in charge of the feedback loop in that company I told you about. And that's and, and and since then we've done it with all our companies, right? I mean, no matter whether technology, your construction services, your whatever you are, retail, whatever the business is, right? The more you communicate with those customers to understand their problem, right? Understand, you know, what what didn't go right. You know, what what would you what would you see as something better, right? Um, the faster you grow, and that, that feedback loop, you know, is something in technology. If you don't if you don't have a strong team, you know, on the feedback loop. You know, forget it. You're, in my opinion, you know, you're you're gonna somebody's gonna catch you and surpass you pretty fast. Um, I didn't really understand that that well um, until getting into the couple of technology companies we have, and now now I, I realize the importance for all our companies. So so let me give you a story from you mentioned uh, Mark Randolph from Netflix earlier, and, and Netflix, you know, the beginning of their journey, they did something completely different, right? There was. Um, Essentially, DVD on demand via the mail. Yep. And that was the first decade for them. Um, and they only decided to change that once they started to hear feedback from the users that saying, you know what, I, I order a comedy. And by the time it got here, and it was a day later, I felt like um, I want to see something else, right? And um, and this is where the on-demand came um, came to their thought process from the feedback. But in general, I would say the feedback loop is is so dramatic, and companies that are doing it well 
they share the feedback with all departments, right? So not just product or customer service, but also engineering. Because when, when you hear a user tells you, I didn't figure out what to do, and you hear that multiple times, then you realize that the product is complex, right? Because until that moment, it seems like this is an argument between engineering and product, right? And, and, and the feedbacks from real users is the one that actually helps the entire organization to improve. And so one of the practices that we have in, in all of our companies is that uh, everyone hears the feedbacks. You know, occasionally, we will send engineers to speak with customers, right? Because even though that usually it's not... It's not exactly the dialogue that you expect, but the engineers will learn so much from that. Um, sure. And that turns out to become, um, you know, it creates your ability to listen to your customers, to your users, way better throughout the well, entire organization. And I think the thing that we don't realize often is that we, we create relationships of trust through that feedback loop that you wouldn't have otherwise. You know, when, you, when, you're, when you're sincere and you honestly are trying to solve their problem, right? They feel it. They know it. And for us, we had, we had customers that were using our product, and, and I'm talking about site right now again, um, that uh, were, were your, yours and my age, right? But uh, they're more like me on the technology side, not like you, okay? So they weren't comfortable using this technology. So we had to make it very simple for them, and there, there, there couldn't be a lot of gadgets, right? And then we, had, then we had younger people that embraced this thing, and we could throw more and more at them, and they would take it all on, right? And if we just listen to one of those customers, it, the product wouldn't be so good. But if we listen to all those customers, we can customize it for the user. Now you got something. And, and you, the, the relationships we built with these customers are unbelievable. And with those relationships, our other businesses have all grown too because these customers not only enjoy the, 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 the consulted product that this is, then they, then they use our, our construction services too. So trust, trust through the feedback loop, I think, is so important. Right, but but there is way more into it, and this is um, you know there is a there is a chapter in my book that say that speaks about understanding users, right? And uh, and and it starts with a story with uh, um, with uh, Steve Wozniak, the one of the co-founders of Apple, that eventually he wrote by forward, and uh, and he called that the Bibles for entrepreneurs. And we met back in 2015 at a conference in Latin America, and we were both uh, speakers at the conference. In the evening before, we had dinner, and uh, and I I thought I would like to have a selfie with uh, with uh, Woz, and uh, and I took my iPhone out, and in uh, um, an iPhone, if you want to take a picture, you can click here on the screen, or you can use the volume button on the side, right? And so I was taking a selfie using the volume button, and he said, finally. And I said, finally what? He said, finally, someone using it the way that I meant it to be. <laughs> and there, and, and there, the important part is that we need to realize that there is no right or wrong. There are different users that are going to use the product in different ways. And their perception of the value is different. And there is only one way for us to understand those different users, right? We need to watch them. Because at the end of the day, and for a second, I will define maybe three major groups of users, the innovators, the early adopters, and the early majority. Now, the, the innovators are about 2% of the populations. They are going to use a new product because it's new. 
the most important thing about the new product is that it's new. They are enthusiastic amateurs about something new in their space. The early adapters will be those that are basically saying, okay, let me understand the value proposition here. I like the value, let me try it. The early majority, which is about one third of the population, and this is really a very significant group, they will understand the value proposition, but they are not going to try the new product. They are afraid of change. And, and what you mentioned earlier is that I think you belong to the early majority. By the way, I belong to the early majority as well. I might be building products, but because as a user, I don't like changes, I ended up with building them really simple. Um, and there is only one way for someone that is building a product to understand that there are different types of users, and this is watching users. And then when they are not doing what you expect them, ask them why. And, and that's the only way for you to learn. That's the only way for you to learn and understand how to improve your, your product. Because at the end of the day, in order to be successful, in order to figure out product market fit, and for a second, I would say product market fit is measured by one metric only, retention. People are coming back. If they get value, they will come back. If they don't get value, they don't. But wait a minute, in order for them to get value, they need to figure out where this value is and how to get to it, right? And so there is a process of adoption before even getting to the value. And this is where most people, their state of mind is very simple. I was doing just fine until now. I don't need this change. Change well, is scary for most people. So, so back, back to your early, early adopters, are you saying early adopters are like two-thirds of that? You got 2% are innovators, one-third are early majority, and then, and then early adapters are two-thirds? No, no, early adopters are about 15%, right? And, and these are only the relevant addressable market because after the early majority, there is the late majority, and it's another, another uh, one-third, and then the last group is something that I call Neverland, right? They will never use something new. Um, the, and and the, the difference is, is that early majority afraid of change. They need someone to, to take them by, the, by their hand and show them the way. The late majority, they are afraid of change and they are not going to change unless they are being forced to, right? So, so just imagine that... Uh, you know, electric vehicle is, is a new types of vehicles. It drives differently. And most people would say, I don't need that. I really enjoy my, uh, my um, you know, American muscle uh, car and, uh, and I don't need that. But if there will be a regulation that prevents using um, uh, fossil oil-based vehicles, then they will have to change. Yeah. That, that's, that's interesting So. And then, like you're saying, if they get, it's pretty simple, right? If, they, if if a customer gets value, they come back. If they don't, they don't, right? And it's pretty, pretty easy. I was at a Mercedes dealership the other day, and uh, and 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 I went in. The service seemed to be great. The service uh, uh, tech seemed to be a great guy, uh, and you know, the woman behind the, the counter seemed very nice. And then I went to the sales floor, and I said, you know what? I might buy another another new car, right? So I looked at some new cars, and I was pretty convinced I was going to probably buy a new car. And then, and then that car three—it was supposed to be done in a day, 
three days later, it cut, like, this changed oil, the, the change in the oil wasn't done yet. And I, and I asked, you know, why? And they said, oh, we, you know, we probably should have called you, but, you know, it, it was, uh, uh, you know, we, we were short of people. I said, okay, great. So when's it going to be ready? They said, it'll be at least another three days before you can get to it. So this is going to be six days when it's supposed to be a one-day project. Well, that, that Mercedes dealership was just built. It's a beautiful Mercedes dealership with you know, lots, lots of cars to look at. <clears throat> you know, they seem like they got everything in, in, the, in, the, in, this, in this place, right? But boy, you know what? They, they never called this after I, after I went back and got the car because I had to leave town. Never got the service done on it. They never called to say, you know, how was, it, how was our service? And, and I, we apologize or anything else. And that, that seemed like a great dealership. And now I, I don't feel like I even want to go back to them. Again, there's two more you know, Mercedes dealerships um, within, within five miles of where I'm at, right? So again, it, it, it's uh, what you just said, you know, really, really uh, um, hits home for me because I just remember this experience last week, right? But uh, it, it's so true. If you, you know, if you deliver value up front, they're, they're coming back. If you don't, um, they may never come back, right? But in a, in a, I agree. In a new product, it's uh, um, you need to figure out the value that you bring. But for the users, they need to figure out how to get to this value, and uh, um, and and that's one of the most challenging parts when you're building new product, right? Because uh, um, in many cases, you know, you want to have so many features in that product, and you're basically saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to have these and these and these and these features, features by features by features. And you create complexity. And really what you need to create is simplicity. Because at the end of the day, if I would ask you, okay, great. So, so how many features are you using on any product, right? On Uber? And you'll tell me uh, maybe one, right? I call uh, a cab and, and that's about it, right? I, I order a ride and that's it. And, yeah. and with days, maybe two of them, right? And, and and with all the products that we're using every day, in 95% of the cases, we're using less than three features. That's it. Wow, yeah, you're right. That's that's me for sure. Okay, but tell, tell us about uh, the, the, these uh, these other startups you're involved in. And, and tell me about, like, let's say, two that you're super excited about that you, that you see amazing opportunity going forward. Um, so, um, you know, occasionally people ask me, so which one is your favorite one? And, uh, and I tell them, look, I also have five kids. Do you want to have to ask the, that question? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so obviously, um, the, the, the interesting question, and each one of my startups is solving a real problem, right? And, and, and to a certain extent for me, it's always about solving problems it's always about doing good and doing well right so i'm looking to create value and the simplest way to create value is solve a problem that's it um move it by the way was acquired by intel two years ago uh for a billion dollar and uh, um and i think that the companies that is making pretty significant uh, progress today is is pontera uh, formerly fix um, FX, and they are dealing with 401k. Because at the end of the day, if you look at the American market, you'll say, okay, 100 million Americans, their retirement saving is in 401k plans, right? And then you ask them, what are you investing in at your 401k? And 90% of the people don't even know. 
when they sign up to um, to join the the new employer years ago, they say, "Yeah, we would like to have four one k," and they stuck with the default, whatever the default is. Now, the default is usually very conservative, and people actually in their retirement planning they need to be very aggressive in terms of uh, of you know focusing on on equity rather than money market or whatever. And the result is that you are not going to have enough money to retire. And uh, and so what Pantera does is is essentially at the end of the day help people to retire richer um, by enabling your financial advisors to actually provide your service on your 401k plans as well, or all the held away accounts, but essentially 401k is, is the majority of them. And, and we ended up with creating so much value to to um, to our financial advisors as the customers, and they are providing so much value to their customers um, that essentially we are going to help America to retire richer. As simple as that. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, that's a about... big problem to solve. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, like you're saying the difference you're making, the impact you're making on life with everything you're doing is. Is so much fun, right? When you see a difference you're making, again, you think of ways and, and what that's done for all of our lives. Now you look at Montera, and, and you know, as you do this, what gets you most? What gets you most excited? Right now, the book. Yeah, what, what you know, and, and, and building these products, what, you know, what what gets you, what you get, what you get you jazzed up the most? So the mentoring the CEOs and watching them, you know, develop. Is it the customer base that you're that you're serving and seeing them enjoy your products? So so it's a combination, right? But it's 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 mostly the people, right? So so I like to see the impact that I create for the life of people, and in particular, I like to see the impact that I hear that I can help the CEOs to, you know, to become better and better and better. Um, and to a certain extent, uh, this is why I wrote the book. So I can actually be more influential, create bigger impact, help more entrepreneurs to become more successful. Because in my mind, entrepreneurs are going to change the world and make it a better place. And if I can help them to increase their likelihood of being successful, then I did my share. And uh, and so right now, I'm mostly excited about the book. Obviously, I'm excited about all of my startups and, uh, and that are essentially creating a lot of value to a lot of users. And, uh, um, and, and to, in my mind, this is, this is my destiny, right? Creating a lot of value to a lot of people. Absolutely. And you're doing an amazing job. There are not many in the world that are, that are doing as, as much as you are. So it's, uh, it's awesome. You're a, young, you're a young man to do all, of you, all that you've done. So. Uh, you got a lot. Of, you got a lot of uh, a lot of road ahead of you to do great things. Um, any, you got you got any questions, Joey? You or uh, if if uh, Chris, you got any questions to throw at Uri? I mean, he's a wealth of information. I know you guys are thinking about uh, you know the difference you can make in your lives. Mm-hmm. Hi, Uri. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Joey. Hi, Uri. I'm blessed to be on this podcast and hear what you have to say. It's very informational for me. Um, I just had a few questions. So for younger entrepreneurs as myself, I was wondering, uh, 
Do you have any words of wisdom or experience that you or your businesses have changed for the better? So, so um, you know, it reminds me a joke of uh, of a very successful CEO that uh, that never went on on uh, on the press, and uh, and one day he decided that he's going to get a very short interview. And the interviewer asked him, "So, so how do you become so successful?" And he said, uh, two words: right decisions." And so the interviewer asking, and, and how do you know how to make right decisions? And I say, one word, experience. Okay, but how do you gain experience? You say, two words, wrong decisions. Don't be afraid to make wrong decisions. You, can, you have plenty of time to fix them. Don't be afraid to fail. Um, and, uh, and this is really dramatic. This is really critical in order to become successful. It's a long journey. You will have hundreds of failures, hundreds of, of, of things that you were 100% sure that they are going to work a certain way, and they don't. And none of them should discourage you. As long as the problem is still worth solving, go and solve it. I like that. As long as the problem is, is worth solving, don't stop, right? Exactly. Awesome. Uh, at the end of the day, successful entrepreneurs, their most significant uh, behavior is is great, right? It's, they don't give up. They don't give up. Chris, Chris, how about you? Yeah, uh, that was that was awesome, Uri. Um, so I, I have uh, just a quick two questions for you. Um, so. You know, after the massive success and exit that uh, you achieved with Waze, what what drove you to continue pushing after achieving such a massive success? And um, why why do you think Google kept uh, Google Maps going, which is arguably Waze's biggest competition? So, so the first one is easy, right? My mission is to create more value, right? So obviously, I will never rest. I will keep keep on creating more value. That's it, right? And uh, and I can create more value through building my own startup, through guiding others to build their their startups, and through um, you know presentations in in entrepreneurship uh, um, uh, groups, and uh, and in particular through my book. Um, Look, end of the day, there is sort of an underlining assumptions that if we are going to merge two major applications, then the result is going to be definitely the winning application. But we don't know that. What we could create is complexity for all previous users of Waze and all previous users of Google Maps. And right now, the use case is actually very different. In, in, and to a certain extent, you know, if people are used to drive with Waze, if you will tell them that they need to switch to Google Maps, they might. But they might switch to something completely different. Right? They might switch to Here We Go, which could be a better application, or to Apple Maps, or to something completely different. And the same with Google Maps, right? If you'll shut down Google Maps and tell everyone, OK, you should switch to Waze, then, then wait a minute. Waze is not good for pedestrians, right? And it's not good for public transportation, and it's not good for for search the way that the nuances that Google can present in the search. Uh, but it's definitely way better for, for commuters on their daily drive. 
Um, and so the use case is slightly different, but the, the fact that you think you can merge applications into one and the re end result is going to be better, it's not going to work. Or it might not work, and then you lose the market. Um, and, and this is really something to remember. End of the day, use case is different. And people don't like changes, right? Every, every time that you issue a new version of a product, then the score on the App Store, if this is an application, is going to go down because people don't like the changes. Okay, one, one more question from, from Joey. Go ahead, Joey. What would you like your legacy to be? Sorry, can you repeat that, please? I was wondering, what, what would you like your legacy to be? A better word. A better word. As simple as that. Awesome. So, so maybe uh, one more thing, and uh, and this is really um, interesting, and maybe leads into um, one of the, the most significant chapters in my book. And uh, and I spoke with many entrepreneurs that their startup failed, and I asked them why, what happened. And about half say the team was not right. And I kept on asking, okay, what do you mean the team was not right? And so they told me, okay, we had this guy not good enough or this guy. So not good enough was one reason that I heard quite often. Another reason that I heard often was um, we had uh, communication issues, something that I actually called the uh, ego management issues. But then I asked them the most interesting question. When did you know that the team is not right? And the scary answer was that all of them told me within the first month, so you say, wait a minute, if you knew within the first month that the team is not right and you didn't do anything, the problem was not that the team was not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make hard decisions. Making hard decisions is hard. Making easy decisions is easy. This is why in most organizations, people don't like to make the hard decisions. And in a small organization like a startup, it will go all the way to the top to the CEO to make that call. Now, if the CEO doesn't make that call, this is where the problem rises, right? Because if there is someone that shouldn't be there, it's a small organization, maybe 10, 20, 30 people. Someone shouldn't be there. Everyone knows. Everyone knows, and the CEO doesn't do anything. And that's the problem. So in my book, there is a chapter that called Firing and Hiring. And when I send that first to the publisher, he said, no, it should be hiring and firing. And I said, no. Firing is hard decision. Hiring is easy decision. And first of all, you need to learn how to fire in order to hire, to be able to hire good people, right? Because at the end of the day, in your hiring process, you will make mistakes. The key question is how fast do you, fi you fix those? And the key takeaway is that every new hire that you have, a month later, ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this person? Now, if the answer is no, fire them immediately because that person is not going to be successful. And the longer that they stay, the more damage that you create for everyone, for the organizations, for the rest of the people, and in particular for that particular person that they are not going to be successful here. They do deserve the opportunity to be successful.
but it's not going to work out here. Absolutely. That's such a great point. I mean, look at how politics ruins, you know, our, our uh, you know, government, you know, bad politics and bad politics ruin businesses as well. As you, as you get larger, there's a, there's a, there's a protective environment that sometimes occurs. Um, they're, they're, they're focused on protecting their job, not hiring the best people, not promoting the best people. And boy, you got you better stay away from that. And, and a great CEO, as you said, is going to, is going to fire when, when people, you know, aren't, aren't right for the team and, uh, and promote those that are, but boy, that's such a good point within 30 days. As you just said, you could probably see the you know, odds are very high uh, that you can see whether a person, somebody you would hire all over again or not. And exactly. uh, boy, if you think that way, so that's such a great point. Awesome. Chris, Chris, you got any qu more questions? Um, I got uh, a lot of great uh, moments to share. Well, I'll tell you what, um, and, and I guess just a couple more things I would say. Um, when I when I look at what you're doing, Uri, you know, the business building is incredible. Uh, the, I, and I know you're an amazing mentor to some of the most most uh, aggressive entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs that want to be like you. Um, and how much fun is that? Right? I mean, I've, I've been blessed to be able to mentor young entrepreneurs, and, and it's the best part of our lives is when we know we're, we're sh sharing experiences with somebody that, as a uh, as a mind to 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 solve solve problems, right? A mind to um, innovate and, and grow something. Um, what be, you know for me, it's about all about just sharing experiences. When I understand what what part of their journey they're on, sharing my experiences. What what's one thing that you would say uh, you found um, you know creates great mentorship of entrepreneurs? Uh, because you know it's it, it's it, you only have so much time in your life, right? You can talk about a lot of stuff. You can tell people what to do, what to do, how to do it, maybe. But in my, in my opinion, it's been just sharing my experiences once I under, seek to understand their challenges, sharing my experiences, or finding other people that have had experiences that that relate to their their challenge. And and I definitely agree that the 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 mentorship is one of the most rewarding parts of my life. You help people become more successful. Well, you know what? Again, you're you're uh, you're a blessing to, to this this world, and, uh, and a blessing that for me is a friend. So I appreciate the time you spent with us today. I'd like to I'd like Chris to go over you know kind of the, the nuggets we like to like to share what we see as the secrets to success for Uri, and then and then you know maybe uh, you know people can think about that and translate that to their own lives as as entrepreneurs. But uh, Chris, uh, what do you got for us, brother? Yeah, awesome. Um, Uri, if I can be so bold, I, I'd like to just throw one last question at you. Um, so you, you mentioned how failure is kind of like a cornerstone of, of every success you've achieved or anyone around you has achieved. Can, can you kind of just uh, let us know some, some tricks on how to become more comfortable with failure or to maybe reframe it so it's not so painful? Um, you know, the most important part is to get up, right? So, so you fell down and then you get up and, um, and the more that you practice that to, to that extent, the more that you feel confident that the next time that you will fail, you'll be able to get up. 
And, and the best way, by the way, to do that is uh, um, the next generation, like your kids. You don't need them to be perfect. You need them to experiment. You need them to come back, to come home with a crazy idea. And you should tell them, why don't you give it a try? And if they fail, then nothing happens, right? Because if you're going to punish your kids if they fail, they will be afraid to fail. And, and therefore, they will not try new things. And therefore, they're not going to become as successful as they could be. I love it. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Uh, so now I'll go over the, the nuggets, and there were a ton of them. Um, make your destiny to create value. I, I think that's a great kind of underlying philosophy. Age is a state of mind. People don't stop dreaming when they become old. They become old when they stop dreaming. It's a great way to reframe aging. Um, entrepreneurship is a journey of failures, as, as we just discussed. Fail fast and fail forward. If you're afraid to fail, you've already failed. Um, figure out product market fit or die. You've never heard of a company that didn't figure this out. And once you figure it out, you don't change the product market fit. Um, no one can compete with good enough and free. Taxi drivers market increased 3x thanks to Uber, something they initially uh, very strongly resisted. Um, they still strongly resisted. Yeah, they still strongly resisted. Um, it, it's a great idea to ask yourself what will make you and your company irrelevant in five to 10 years. Um, who will still be in the top 10 companies in 10 years? Probably only five of them. Uh, the biggest enemy of good enough is perfect. The only way to get feedback from users is to launch. There's no right or wrong way to use your product, just different users. Uh, product market fit is measured by one metric, and that is retention. And finally, create simplicity, not complexity. Chris, you, you captured a bunch of them, buddy. The couple that I that stood out to me, I know all those are awesome, and boy, there's so many. We talked to if we talked to Uri for for two hours, uh, we're going to have 150 different things to talk about. But uh, you know, I I, I I always uh, respected his his uh, you know it, when 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 when, he, when, he, when I think of Uri, right? You know, I think of a troublemaker, right? He's he's and I love the way he said that. Entrepreneurs are troublemakers. They're disruptors, right? They find an industry, they find a they find a problem, and they and they're troublemakers, right? Because the the rest of the market doesn't like them. Especially initially. Now later on, you might find that it, you know, he was a blessing, like he has been, right? To many of the problems he solved. But again, entrepreneurs are troublemakers. Be a disruptor, right? I I often say differentiate or die, right? That's kind of the thing I've, I've said all you know for a long time, and I believe that, right? If if we if we can't differentiate and provide value a value proposition, our competition can't. We probably don't deserve their business, and uh, and and Uri Uri's the the king of this, right? Uh, so. I really appreciate your time today, buddy. And uh, yeah, yeah, awesome. Well, you know what? Again, anybody out there that's a real entrepreneur that loves to share their their entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial values, boy, buy this book <coughs> and distribute it to all your friends. If you're a real friend, give it to give it to 100 friends. So I really appreciate you, Uri, and, uh, and your time and you as a friend. Um, don't be a stranger, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Ditch Digger CEO today with an amazing, amazing uh, friend of mine, Uri Levine, and, and uh, 
what a, what a blessing he is to, to this, this world today and the future. So thanks everybody for showing up. Thank you, Uri. See ya. Thank you. Take care. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo. Cans, paper routes, mowing lawns, cans, Daddy had six kids to raise. Factory and Show them now, all the lessons I learned.